Hey, welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Gabe BC, and for those of you just joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology. Each week, I'll be having a conversation with another artist, curator, inventor, robot, museum specialist, or CEO about how creative people are working with tech. If you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear more about, feel free to send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. All right, let's get this week's episode started off. Today, I'm super excited uh, to talk to you. I have a new guest. Uh, it's Adi Melenciano. Adi is a Brooklyn-based uh, interdisciplinary artist, creative technologist, researcher, and futurist who is passionate about exploring the relationships between various forms of design and the human experience. Adi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I just wanted to start off um, by asking you how you got your start, how you're interested, you know, how, how did this interest evolve in art and tech? as an artist I loved creating with anything around me as a kid um, but also had a inclination towards technology and more of like machines and fascination with them of calculators I used to cal- collect calculators and used to play around with a bunch of different softwares on my computer like GarageBand and iMovie and really enjoying how the technology I was using could enhance the artwork that I was creating and make it just push it beyond crayons of paper or just drawing and sketching Um, And so I went to a science and tech high school and got a little bit introduced to different things like rendering, 3D rendering and electrical engineering. Uh, But a lot of it kind of went over my head or it felt like it did. Hmm. Uh, And I also didn't see ways that it was being used creatively. It felt very technical and scientific and not really expressive, like expressing yourselves. And um, that was what drew me to art of just being able to express yourself and not finding it in tech kind of drew me away from thinking that that's a space where I could be creative in. And so I found uh, it was while I was studying abroad in Barcelona, and mm. it was a festival called La Merce, and it's like a year-long fest, a yearly festival, and it's for about a week, and they just have a whole bunch of public programming and a bunch of stuff for free. And one of the events was um, projection mapping on on top of the La Sagrada Familia, the most famous church in Barcelona. Oh wow! Um, not an easy yeah, thing to projection map onto. Not at all. Yeah, very <laughs> difficult. And what they did was just mind blowing, of like completely transforming the church and making it this sort of like jungle of all this forestry and plants and animals all moving around and the song and the music that was accompanying it just it was really interesting to see how just simple light projection could completely transform a public space um so after seeing that i was like wow i want to do something exactly like that and so after graduating undergrad i found itp and thought um it was just such a perfect place for me to enter as someone that loves the arts, but also wanted to get more technical and how I was creating uh, and going through ITP's classes and just being enamored by everything that they were teaching and wanting to take all the classes. I knew it was a space that I had to be in. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your uh, thesis project at ITP, um, which yeah. was a series of cameras that you created from scratch called Ojo Oro. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was a dream project uh, of just being able to realize it and me loving photography, also another medium of art that I've really enjoyed and loving documenting people and spaces uh, and starting with f- digital photography and doing that for several years intensely and then starting to get bored with it because it felt like all the photos I was taking, I'd already taken them before. And it wasn't much of an experience anymore of taking digital photography because you see it on your screen and then that's it. And you don't even do anything with the photos later. Right. So is I started that, to get into Is that frustrating yeah. to you? Like you see how people basically just take photos as if it's not a big deal anymore for somebody who has a sort of a more, uh, you know, photography background? 
Yeah, it feels kind of pointless at times. It's like you're just <laughs> taking these photos and then you never return to them. They're just like inside your memory card and maybe you'll use them. But oftentimes we never go back to all these photos that we take. So wanted to just change that experience a bit. But I was also getting into instant photography. Um, hmm. And for one, I loved the immediate gratification and physicality of it. It's like having the photo in my hands and I could give it to people. But I also love the design of the cameras uh, and design of electronics has been a huge thing of me of what's the the visual experience like of using the the device. So instant cameras, they were really beautiful. I also moved into film cameras and loved um, their aesthetic as well. And also just the surprise element that you get when you take a photo or several photos and you have them developed and just that whole waiting process. And then you see them and sometimes they have these beautiful light leaks in them or a lot of grain or there's just... It, it reinvigorate it reinvigorated the passion for photography photography for me in a lot of ways mm -hmm. uh, and so I wanted to explore a way that I could create this camera that's the best of all of these different worlds of this camera that's aesthetically pleasing and the way that it's designed and also knowing that if we're going to use a camera we're most likely wearing it around our neck or it's a part of our outfit so why not make it something that's fashionable and um, complementing to what we're wearing. And then also be a digital camera in that it's convenient and it's cheap and you don't have to pay for it to get developed. But it practices the same experience of what it's like to take a, a photo with a film camera and like that random, it applies random film like filters onto the photo and you don't see the photo as you're taking it. There's no screen. You have to go uh, to whatever paired software there is with the camera to see it. So kind of just exploring what a new experience could be like using emerging technologies with analog technologies. Yeah, I think that's super relevant right now, especially because photography used to be such an individualized practice, right? People would be mm -hmm. sort of obsessed with the kind of lens that they would use, the physical yeah. body of the camera. And now we just think of it, a lot of people just think of it as, oh, I just take a photo with my phone. You know, which which right. iPhone do you use? Do you have three cameras on your iPhone or do you have two right. <laughs> or one, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> I really like that you're bringing sort of, um, you know, fashion in a way back to cameras too. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Can you describe a little bit what these cameras look like? Because I think it's really important, just the aesthetic of them too. They're not just like a standard box that you're taking photos with. Yeah, that was also a thing of like, if for me, it's just if we have the power of using technology in ways that it was also that shift of me growing up and being this artist that loves technology, but is always an end user. And now I'm in a space where I can create my own technologies. Uh, why not push the boundaries of what things have to be? And so with this project, I really wanted to think about um, camera design and push it away from the standard rectangular shape, but be more of something that has a more iconic shape. So this camera, it has uh, six sides, like it's not a rectangle. Uh, it's colorful. It's using acrylic and different materials, shiny materials. Um, and it's just very like weird in its configuration of like you have these big LEDs on it and big buttons and um, really just merging a lot of color and being beyond these black or all silver uh, cameras. Do you, in general, sort of reject the ultra sleek, um, modern design style that we've kind of become used to from you know companies like Apple or Amazon? Or do you do you enjoy that kind of design too? I'm just kind of curious about your design aesthetics. Yeah, it depends on how it's used. Like I'm not too much into minimalism um, with most products, but it depends on how, I mean, how well it's done. I really appreciate how film photography, it's not really this minimalism. There, there are a bunch of little notches and 
uh, screws and all these different aspects of it that kind of make it more, uh, it just feels like more time was put into it. And that's a big thing for me of how it looks as far as, um, the work that someone put in, into creating it, which is why I so much adore Leica cameras. Cause there's just so much, there's so much little detail in every part of it. And when you have a bunch of mass consumed products that are very minimally designed, it kind of takes a lot of heart away from it. So it depends on how it's done. Yeah. Outside of um, photography and cameras, you're also super into music and music composition. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the work you're currently doing uh, at New Inc., which is the new museum's uh, incubator? Yeah. So um, this will be my first year at New Inc., um, incubating some works. And I'm part of this experiments and arts and technology track, which is brand new. They had it, they did it for a little bit in, diff- in a different capacity earlier, but this one is first the first designated track and it's uh, in partnership with Rhizome and with Bell Labs, Nokia Bell Labs. Hmm. And so we're still figuring out kind of like how it'll all take into shape, but we just visited Bell Labs and we were meeting with the team over there and the engineers. And it's, it's very much an invitation for us as artists at New Inc. and the track to collaborate with the engineers because these engineers are creating technologies that are so far out into the future and won't be consumed at all anytime soon. So kind of thinking of how we can help their trajectory as engineers and us coming from an artistic mindset of ways that these technologies can explore human elements like emotion and um, different forms of communication and just ground it more in artistry as opposed to pure functional or not even understanding in what ways it might serve uh, functional practices. And so for me, I love um, music and have always loved music and just this ability to kind of be this artistic form that's not exactly tangible, but it's such an ex- experience and listening to it and understanding the history and uh, exploring different artists and the ways that they approach sound. Um, so for me, I kind of approached it. I created music when I was younger and studied, uh, was trained in, trained in classical piano and clarinet, but then I moved more towards other genres, uh, growing up in a home that loves to blast reggae and Lauren Hill and would uh, start DJing in college. And then as I've DJed more and more, I've gotten much more into sound and kind of how you compose them. And uh, also just being fascinated with machines and loving different uh, drum machines, kind of exploring how to get deeper and deeper inside and what's the psychology of sound and how to build my own machines. So lately I've been building uh, machines that kind of, or the most recent project has been called, it's called Electro Negro Synesthesia. And so I'm exploring black cultural artifacts and ways that we can infuse technology into them. And kind of, for me, I really love speculating what the future of culture is and kind of how it'll be accepted or rejected in the future compared to how it is now. And me just having such an appreciation for so many elements of black culture, like do-rags and bamboo earrings and Afro picks and ways that we could put technology into them and kind of uh, reframe the way that they are experienced. And so with the do-rags, I would put uh, infuse technology to make them so they're touch interactive. And as you press different parts of the do-rag, it'll play sound. Same with the bamboo earrings and with the Afropix, as you place different Afropix in a certain position, there's sort of this MIDI controller that uh, then triggers different visuals to show. So a lot of exploring of that, of what is it like for culture to exist in the future? And then in relation to sound, how can that be experienced and composed? Yeah, I love that in both these projects, this and Ohooro, you're kind of mm-hmm. remixing a device, right? You're taking like a pre-existing yeah. device and remixing and adding your own story on top of that uh, exactly. in a way that's that feels more human than the way that the technology is originally designed for. Um, yeah. So, so I, I find that very seeing, interesting. 
Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's just seeing like, what can technology do with things that, because we, there's so many beautiful and amazing technologies that have already existed, but what would it be like if we just added what currently exists now that didn't exist then? Right. Uh, you also teach uh, two very cool sounding classes at NYU. <laughs> can, you tell you. Us, can you tell us a little bit about those two classes and what what the students are learning in them? Yeah. So the first one is um, designing club culture. That's at ITP, which is the program that uh, I came out of and your professor at and um, have loved the space at ITP of just being this uh program that you can really explore a lot of different elements of life in relation to technology. And so for me, I'm a very big admirer of counterculture and the 60s and 70s and what was going on then and um, opposition to politics or the general status quo politics that were going on and loving the aesthetics of disco and um, black power movements and all of those things and seeing them in relation to them being inspired by and also inspiring entertainment, leisure entertainment at the time, like going to nightclubs and performing and creating these disco spaces that are not just for musical performance, uh, entertainment, but also the sort of experiment and ways that people are gathering together, these sort of social experiments. So that's what we're covering a lot of um, in the class of just, for one, learning a lot about racial histories in the States and kind of how they've inspired a bunch of genres, specifically in considering black music genres, like moving from slave music to then funk to then jazz to eventually disco and hip hop after that. And also seeing the ways that these musics are being presented, both musically and visually and how they're being created. And then considering ways that we might create our own spaces that are have these sort of uh, subliminal kind of manifestos, because that's a lot of what club culture was, of mm. these people are coming together because they believe in something similar, and then they're being entertained with things that uh, express these ideas musically and visually. And so to wrap up the course, students will create their very own uh, club kind of culture and make these audiovisual uh, performances using a bunch of now well-practiced uh, softwares like Ableton and uh, projection mapping and um, sound machines and a bunch of other things. Uh, so that's the one at ITP. And then the other one Wait, so is student, called... Before we, before we move from that one, so students yeah. are designing their own clubs as the final or are they designing yes. sort of like the experience of being at a club? How do you present these final projects? Yeah, so they're, it's very quick. It's a seven-week class, so we don't have too much time, but they're going to be entering a space and changing that space with their visuals and sounds. So there are four different groups and they're collaboratively working to create these sort of one-off clubs that you can experience for 20 minutes through their sounds and visuals. Huh. What are some examples of the type of clubs they're creating? They, I have no idea what they're up to. We'll see. <laughs> but <laughs> we had prototypes exhibited in the last class and some of them are considering like anime in relation to both like sampling anime sounds, but then using uh, more modern drum patterns, more like pop sounds, hmm. uh, combining them. So we'll see. I'm not. One of them was actually about the end of the world, uh, kind of <laughs> wow. like celebrating how uh, it's the end of the world, but it's fine, and um, you know, just like giving people space to come together one last time. Wow, it's very optimistic. Yeah. That, that club. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> and the other class you're teaching is uh, documenting downtown, right? That's with photography. Yeah. Yeah, documenting downtown with new media. It's not a class that I entirely created. They asked me to teach it because uh, they 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 want people to they want the students and the in the photography department to kind of become more well versed with technology. And so there's generally some sort of a little relationship between the photography department and ITP. Um, and so that one is 
for me, it's been interesting working with them. It's an undergraduate course and it's a space I've never been in. Like I, I had no idea what the environment like is like at um, NYU's photography department, but it's really interesting to be amongst them and kind of learn the way that they approach photography. Because for me, I love photography, but I was never exactly trained in it. And so to be in a class where they're trained in composition has been interesting and bringing in a different lens of not being, not confining yourselves to the way that photography is traditionally uh, approached, but more of thinking about it in relation to space and exploring ways that you could push the experience of photography to include sound and moving images. So some assignments have included walking around your neighborhood and creating a sort of photo story that uses uh, a specific color element in all photos. So kind of Mm. being more aware of your surroundings uh, and documenting it in a particular way or walking through a different part of New York City that you've never been in and collecting sounds then creating the sort of soundscape that either allows someone to experience that space as it uh, traditionally might be experienced or to use those sounds and completely manipulate them to make them an entirely different experience and unrecognizable space. Um, And so then we're going to, the final project will be to create a zine that you're using um, all these different elements that we've gone through in class using photography, but then also considering how we can uh, tell more stories beyond what photography allows us to do. So the zine will be enhanced by augmented reality where different pages will then uh, portray more media and tell a better story through augmented reality. It's, It's amazing. I mean, I think that it seems like, again, with these classes, like your other projects, you're kind of breaking out of the barriers of technology um, yeah. and expanding. I mean, do you feel like limited by the way technology is designed currently? Is that why there's a rejection in a lot of your work or, or not a rejection maybe, but an expansion of uh, the way we look at technology? I think so. I think even my like experience within te- technology, it's it's so limited by what coding language I know at the time and how well-versed I am in it. And I mm. think Um, it's been great to like with the photography class, I'm not really teaching them how to get into the coding of creating augmented reality, but just using these tools that already exist that allow them to very easily approach AR, um, because that takes up so much time and takes away from the creative part of building, uh, and making these experiences and being artistic and you're much more focused on how to use them. So I I appreciate photography and that it's been able to allow me to express myself artistically in ways I could have never imagined before, but it's also limiting in what you can do because technology, it gives you so much access, but it's like, you have to know a certain amount to get there. So do do you feel like limited by the tools that exist already? Are you interested in sort of expanding upon those tools? I'm interested in expanding. I I feel like I have a a sort of back and forth relationship between tools and like being a tool designer and then creating my own art. And I feel like even with the camera, that was one way of me kind of creating this tool that's allows someone to explore their artistic uh, vision without having to get into creating a program that would apply different stuff. Like even like it was meant to solve a few different problems of we're photographers and we have to do all this post editing and that whole process. Um, and so this camera was meant to be a tool that uses technology in ways that aren't traditionally practiced um, and makes it easier for the artists to be innovative using technologies. And I feel like I get into those modes a lot, but then I also want to create things that aren't exactly functional as tools, but more of just uh, experiences to create art. And I think that kind of ties, I think the idea of me creating tools um, that are using technology for people to be creative is stems a lot from um, just my experience with current technology today of how limiting it can feel and frustrating it could feel um, using these technologies because 
you have to be so well-versed in certain technologies in order to really push the boundary and create it, create what you want to create. And I think it stems a lot from these technologies being built by people that are very scientific and technical and um, not exactly understanding UX and uh, way humans might use these technologies in an intuitive sort of way. And so we really have to think uh, and get to know these technologies very well in order to kind of um, realize the things that we want to create. Right. I mean, I think uh, you created a project that sort of envelops this idea uh, called Justice Factory, which is taking on sort of how we look at data visualization, um, sort of, you know, thought of as a very technical field, which is full of a lot of charts and graphs. But you look at it sort of differently with Justice Factory. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the idea that or the inspiration behind Justice Factory stemmed a lot from um, just learning more about what's going on in the world and racially and the racial disparities that are happening and me thinking about my experiences and growing up um, in the area that I did and it being a predominantly black space. And though it was a space that um, was not exactly, uh, we had a lot of access to things in ways that most black spaces don't. We still, there were still a lot of conditions that were going on within my community um, that I thought was just uh, happening because it just happened, like it's just a, a sort of coincidence. Um, but then understanding how racial dynamics have worked in America and how so much of the conditions in uh, black and more other marginalized communities, how those exist, uh, kind of being aware of all the things that are going on, uh, like the racial dynamics inside the country and how so many like more, I guess you could call it urban areas, but even rural areas where they have a lot of black people. It's there. There's a lot of uh, a lot of things going on that are part of a system's design of uh, racial segregation, housing segregation, and the way that police have operated in, in black communities and uh, food deserts and all these different things. And for me, it became really important to make sure that the people that are experiencing life inside of these communities understand that what they're experiencing is not this sort of uh, it's not their fault entirely. It's not um, It's not a coincidence. It's not just like it happened to be this way in the neighborhood that they're in, but it's actually something that has been designed uh, for them to experience. And once they understand that it's a part of the design, it's much easier to combat. And it's also easier to combat when you have language that identifies what's going on, because the biggest thing in, in protesting in communities that are very marginalized is just understanding the language to use to be able to identify your conditions. So for me, that was a, a big inspiration in creating the data visualizations, but it was also me trying to figure out ways that I could use all this data that I was finding to relay it to people in a way that's very easily digestible. Uh, so through art, I found has been a, a great way of because it's engaging and it simplifies the data in a way that's um, easy to understand. And then beyond just being easy to understand, it has to be something that people can identify with. So for me, it became very important to think of the human elements uh, when using or when creating data visualizations, because so often we use shapes like circles and rectangles to represent human lives. And I think it's so easy to remove the idea that this is being applied to someone that could look like us or could look like our neighbor or someone that we know. Uh, when you don't, when you just see it as a sort of generic way of representing um, people and their experiences. So Justice Factory, it would use a lot of human elements uh, and kind of think very differently about data visualizations and also very inspired by people like W.B. W. Du Bois, who was creating these sort of visualizations on um, black life in the 1900s, and also Mona Shalabi, who's very innovative in her approach to data visualizations of being these sort of illustrations and sketches. And so watching them, but me thinking, at wanting me wanting to do it in a very specifically black space 
uh, and using the visualizations to represent conditions in black American life today, uh, produced Justice Factory, which yeah. fortunately was uh, sponsored by processing um, the Processing Fellowship and them considering ways that I could use uh, creative technology to kind of enhance these visualizations to make them more interactive. So can you give us an example of one of these visualizations? I'm thinking um, there's a piece that you created called D- Driving While Black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that one was uh, a sketch of two people inside of a car. And it's it's like it's not meant to be purely accurate in the way that it represents data as far as like um, each inch of an illustration represents this amount of data. It's more of relaying the entire the message. So in the illustration, you see two people in a car. One's a white male, another is a black male. And the black male has his head. Uh, the neck is so is unnaturally long to represent how uh, black men are three times more likely to be pulled over by police when driving versus white men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, amazing depiction. And I love the idea of viewing data visualization uh, in ne- necessarily a non, um, you know, mapped out way. <laughs> Thinking almost about Thank a more you. human approach to data visualization is very interesting to me. Is this a, is this Thank an ongoing project or is this a project that you did with processing and now you're kind of done with it? It's an ongoing project. I just haven't been able to return to it in a right. little while. <laughs> You've got a lot going on, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wonder if you could even think about um, crowdsourcing illustrations or something. It might be really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, mm, I really appreciate, good. yeah, I appreciate the, the project. I love this, the style. These are, these are hand-drawn uh, drawings by you? Yeah. Hand-drawn on an iPad. So nice. digitally rendered. Yeah. But hand-drawn. That's great. So we haven't talked yet about Afrotectopia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> probably the, I don't know if it's probably the thing you're most well known for, but um, yeah. you're the founder of Afrotectopia, um, which is a new media arts, culture, and technology festival. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit how you started this festival and kind of what drove you to do it in the first place? Yeah, the festival stemmed uh, from a lot of different personal experiences. For one, it was... Um, me entering ITP, uh, and it was being an ITP was my first real uh, entrance into a tech space. Before that, I was never um, doing anything tech related, uh, as far as like coding or programming and anything like that. Um, so entering this space and being so excited by all the things that I was learning and ways that I was able to realize uh, my artistic ideas and push them much beyond ways I would have imagined uh, any time in the future. So having that access to all these different uh, creative technologies and um, being to use them in ways that are very artistically expressive and thinking about how people, my friends from back home would have used these technologies had they, if they ever knew how to use them um, or ever had access to them. And my friends from home are predominantly black and we don't have these kind of programs um, in our space like this. So for one, I was thinking about what, people that look like me might use them. Um, And then also thinking about being a student at ITP and loving all that I'm learning, but then also being one of the very black, few black students in the program and um, not really having faculty to, to look at that are doing, that are thinking about race critically and being the one student in class that's saying, well, if we use this technology in this way, it might not exactly deploy well in communities that I'm most familiar with. So kind of being very enamored and uh, excited about what I can do, but being a, a disappointed at the fact that more people that look like me aren't able to do these things. And then also being worried about the futures of technology and how it's so absent of considering race and um, equality and justice when we're building different applications. So, and also just the lack of community of I'm um, creating all these works that 
think about race in these ways, but I don't really have a community of people that are that I can see that are doing similar things and um, don't have a community of people that I can build with and just learn more from. Um, so Africatopia was designed with those thoughts in mind of how can I create a community of people that are considering technology and design and art in relation to culture and race and equity and justice and what a community of us might look like and and even considering how technology could eventually be used to build this future world that is more equitable and more um, it's just healthier for Black communities. So the first one happened um, at NYU at ITP, and the ITP program was incredibly supportive of helping realize it and giving us the space and nurturing to help it come into fruition. Uh, and it created a, a, a good buzz around New York City of people excited of, at the fact that we're finally merging these different worlds that have often been so siloed and how Black people that are also very siloed in the tech space finally have a space to come together and talk about their work and celebrate the works of pioneers and be introduced to all these creative technologists that are doing works um, that are important to see and also being a space that's not purely about uh, technologists and kind of what they're doing, but being a very interdisciplinary space because the mission of Africatopia is also to create long-lasting and sustainable impact for the Black community that's an empowering um, and inclusive of a lot of different branches of knowledge. So people that are urban designers and lawyers and politicians and economics and uh, economics and um, just people coming from very different lenses and um, thinking together of ways that we are having, we have our own blind spots, but ways that us coming together and talking could relieve some of that and sustainably create a better future. So the past, the second one happened about a month ago at Google. And that one was even more exciting for me because we kind of ch shifted the frame of how Afrotopia is being approached as far as um, the experience. And for me, pedagogy and the way that pedagogy is designed and spatial design is very important to me. And I love studying the works of Bell Hooks and Paulo Freire and how they use uh, education to be these tools that uplift oppressive communities um, and kind of thinking of ways that pedagogy could be approached at Afrotopia. Of, for me, I'm, I'm very much not a fan of panels and I hate being on them. And it's, it's so <laughs> why, do you hate, it, why do you hate being on panels? Because it's so like, for me, I'm just like, there's so much intelligence in the room. We would learn so much more if it wasn't just mm a few of us sitting up on stage and you guys are asking us questions or watching people ask the panelists questions as if they don't have some sort of answer inside themselves. And I think it's really, for me, education is so much important, uh, so important to create these sort of dynamics where a lot of people feel comfortable bringing in their own expertise because everyone has an expertise in something. And that's really what I approach, uh, how I approach teaching my own classes of these are things that I know, but I'm not an expert in, and we all have something to contribute. So how can we create this environment collectively where it's, um, we're all learning? So for me, I wanted to get away as much as possible from panels with Africtopia um, and make sure that as many attendees as possible could bring their voice into the space because I knew we would learn a lot much, a lot more if that was the frame for it. So that's how the last ones realized. And it was also a shift in, as far as um, our ideas of practicing this kind of work. And I've had conversations with people who would say, you know, it's important to um, understand the, the way that you're building a community and kind of what your foundation is built off of. And with the first one, it was so much of, I just want to see this happen and it's going to quickly be thrown together and let's see who comes and um, what they take from it. 
and it wasn't as far as nearly as intentional as far as um, ways that we're approaching this kind of work. And for me, it's been important to build a foundation where we're not centering the problems of whiteness and how it can be enacted in very harmful ways for marginalized communities, but we're much more centered on the intelligence of blackness and the sort of cultural memory and uh, ways that black people have been so uh, innovative and uh, creative in ways generationally before um, and ways that we can continue this kind of work in the future. And I feel like uh, stemming from a place of recognizing our own greatness as opposed to pointing fingers and blaming um, works of other people also made people feel a lot more hopeful. And that idea of building a community based on something that's um, something towards the future as opposed to pointing towards the past in ways that could be solved also allows for a more sustainable um, community. So that was the approach for this year. And so what were some of the sessions like that were led during Afrotectopia? Like, do people submit their own sessions to lead or are you going out and finding innovators to, to talk about their work? It was a mix of both. So I wanted it also to be um, not just people that I'm aware of, but people that are aware of Afrotopia uh, applying to present their own work. So it was kind of half and half as far as who was presenting. About half the people I knew from a while before and other people I had never met and just saw their work and saw how well it fit with kind of what we're doing in Afrotopia. So the workshops would be... um, Things ranging from using augmented reality, augmented reality in different ways, or creating wearable, uh, uh, embarking wearable technology kind of devices, and creating our own um, clothing, like based on African prints, using different uh, sensors or decolon- decolonizing education was a think tank that we had, mm-hmm. or. Uh, just general pedagogy design and ways that we could approach it that use steam and cultural relevancy. So think different, very different um, ideas kind of coming together in ways that are culturally relevant. And what were some of the projects that came out of this? So this was a two-day weekend workshop. Is that right? The first one was. Uh, was the second one the, the same? First, yeah, the first one was two days. The second one, we extended a little more uh to Friday, so we had uh, three days, the opening keynote uh, and conversation and kind of reception on Friday. Um, and works that you works that came out of Afrotopia included some lightning talks on people like um, Ashley Jane Lewis, who did who shared her research on Octavia Butler and these ideas of um, how Octavia has studied slime mold and how biocultures have been really great tools in understanding how com- communities can operate. Um, by studying the way that slime mold maneuvers through their different um, systems or another one, another think tank was, or another lightning talk was by Victor Dibia. And he had a really fascinating talk of ways that um, he's using AI to create African masks. And I think um, being able to hear him talk about ways that he's actually generating African masks that have not existed, but through data he's being able to develop and render his own is really fascinating in thinking about how so much of the Black existence has been removed from our um, antiquated cultural artifacts and how we don't really have access to the things that we were building centuries ago um, because of this, because of our being brought to Americas. And so thinking of ways that we can use technology to kind of recreate things that might have existed in the, in the past is very exciting. Oh, that's amazing. Um, are there plans for a future Afrotectopia coming up? 
so people can actually yeah. sign up for it if they're interested. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For right now, I'm kind of like taking a little bit of a breath before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you're teaching two in. classes <laughs> and making cameras yeah. and everything else, so <laughs> it, it makes sense. Uh, but yeah, but. Yeah, was, I mean, there are definitely visions that are being developed and a lot of conversations with different entities as far as ways that we could think of Africtopia outside of the festival and have more year-long um, events. So conversations like that are happening. And also just my general vision of the things that have wor- worked most successfully with Africtopia being the think tank of every mm-hmm. the, in the past two years, every Sunday has been dedicated to hours of us breaking up into groups and thinking about different um parts of life, whether it's healthcare, education, or mental wellness, and thinking about them uh, surrounding works by experts that come and present their work, and then collectively and collaboratively thinking of potential solutions and using, if it if technology makes sense or not, um, of ways that we can help uh, build uh, solutions that are sustainable and would deploy well in our own communities. And I think that uh, part of the event has been very successful because people are able to roll up their sleeves and kind of get involved in work as opposed to kind of sitting around and being preached to because people that are coming after Utopia were already very familiar with um, the racial sprays that are going on. So creating opportunities for people to come together and build and with a bunch of different lenses because everyone that's coming coming to Africtopia are coming from different, very different fields of work has been successful. And so for me, I've been thinking a lot about how to continue that work year round and not be um, not just be held at the event, but ways that we could build this sort of think tank of people throughout the year and be a sort of conduit between us, the community and um, in the other institutions like the government and thinking about different forms of impact. Hey, what, so what are some of the biggest um, barriers that people of color face in the tech world? Um, I guess both as users and as technologists that, uh, you know, people who, you know, people outside of this group may not be aware of. You know, I'm curious yeah. uh, how you're dealing with that in Afrotechtopia as well. I think a, a big thing is access, uh, like access to everything. So mm-hmm. you grow up and you're in schools that don't have advanced uh, courses like advanced maths or computer science. So already there's a barrier and you don't have, you, you don't become as familiar as young to technology. And then you get to college and it's a completely isolating experience because you're one of the very few black students. So you don't really feel like you belong and you also don't see yourself in any of the professors. So that's very discouraging. And then you get into a job and you're also one of the very few black people. And if, even if you, if you could even get into a job because people are hiring their own friends, which is natural, but it's also very problematic in that their own friends are usually people that look like them. So not having access, even uh, you get the interview, but it's like, it's so hard to even get the job. And then when you finally get the job, it's uh, it's so hard to retain black um, w- technologists because the experience can be so traumatic of the microaggressions that people say, or just your general experience or the conversations people are having or how, um, how innate racism can be in so many different forms. And uh, it goes so unchecked. And then you, um, just the the entire experience of working in that field can be very harmful. Um, So I think access on so many different levels has really been what stifled a lot of um, creative expression with technology and the Black community. So Afrotopia is very much designed for us to come together and get to know each other so we can build our own stuff, whether we're building our own building our own uh, companies or we're remaining in the companies that we are in, but building our own projects amongst each other. 
Uh, I think the biggest thing is really just having that community of people. And also there are a lot of black people that are inside these tech companies, but they, they also can't, uh, it's hard to find, it can be hard to find people that look like themselves to bring in. So kind of, uh, alleviating that by bringing us all together and then creating this like center, uh, of innovation of black innovation for other companies to come in and see the work of Africtopia and see who's presenting and be able to contact them to bring them into their communities. So I think generally it's just access and kind of creating these spaces where we're, um, be able to promote our work better and collectively has been a big goal of Africtopia. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, so you have an Africtopia summer camp coming up. Uh, yeah, well, we have <laughs> or you just that. did. Yeah, yeah. It just, it, yeah, it happened. I can't believe the summer um, is gone already. But yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Are you going to do it again next year as well? You think? The idea, yeah. I mean, it's like pedagogy for me, as I mentioned, is just such a something I'm so passionate about. Um, and that access that I was mentioning earlier of not being able to have these sort of classes inside of our schools, it was really what fueled the idea of the summer camp. And the way that it was operated was um, it invited great students, NYC public school students, grades 6 through 12, to come in and learn about ways that um, technology and art design and Black culture and activism can all be merged to create these exciting works and also create a space where um, these students are able to see themselves in the pioneers, in the uh, examples of um, work that we're doing that the curriculum surrounds. So we would study the works of different Black arts movement pioneers like um, Africobra or AACM, these different collectives that would consider art and technology in different ways um, that were much beyond what was being practiced at the time or studying the works of W.B. Du Bois and his work in data visualizations and students would create their own data visualizations or even studying the works um, of different institutions that are highlighting ways that you can uh, be a more engaged citizen. So we would create stop motion animation films on um, understanding what it what your rights are as citizens when you are dealing with ICE and you're an undocumented immigrant or ways that you can approach the police that maintain your own safety uh, if they pull you over. So mm. different things like that. And the idea is to continue every year, ideally, uh, and expand. The first one was a pilot and have more students um, and create ways that we can kind of make sure that we're involved with them throughout the year, even when it's not summer camp. So this is going to become like a whole movement, basically, Afrotectopia. It sounds like it is already. <laughs> I mean, Thank it seems you. like if you can get this outside of New York and into some other schools and you yeah. know all over the country and hopefully all over the world, it'd be fantastic. Um, Thank you. Have you been approached by you know tech companies at all? I mean, I know you did the last one at Google, but are there other tech mm -hmm. companies that are interested in getting involved with uh, Afrotectopia? Yeah, there have been. I mean, um, Google has been a, a really great supporter. Mailchimp has also uh, also supported our past one, um, and uh, other tech companies I'm in conversation with, which is exciting because it's 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 great to because so much is on my plate. It's really helpful that these communities are kind of recognizing the work and coming out to me. And um, now it's just building on the things that we're talking about. I don't want to like put them out there, but they're definitely <laughs> coming. So. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting because so much of these issues start to take place at tech companies. I mean, like the fact that people are being yes. excluded from work at tech companies, it's important for them exactly. to be part of this discussion, I think, and to really yep. learn from what you're doing as well. Um, just exactly. in terms of hiring practices, how to keep people engaged. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of important issues that you're dealing with in Afrotechtopia that I hope get that aren't just funded by tech companies, right? But are embraced by tech companies too. Yeah, I mean, for any, if anything, it helps their business as well. The more right. diverse thinking you have, the more money you make. So right there you go. 
Um, so Adi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Before we go, I want to ask you, we have a sort of a lightning round that we do on state of the art, uh, where I ask really rapid fire questions. Um, and it's really just the first thing that pops into your mind, the first answer. So they're kind of silly questions. Um, you you don't have to take them too seriously, but hopefully it'll help us get to know you even better. Uh, although we already know you very well from this interview. Um, so I'll give you the first one here. Um, if you had to, Create one song that you would listen to in the Adi Melenciano nightclub uh, for the rest of time on loop. What would that song be and why? Oh, wow. Create one song. Like, if, you know, if you're DJing one song over and over and over again, what oh, would you what would you want to have? One song. Oh, that's really hard. <laughs> uh, I would say something by Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. One of the maybe the recipe by Kendrick Lamar. I just love that beat. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that sounds good. You wouldn't get sick of it probably after you know over yeah, and over right. again. Uh, great. Um, and if you had to create one device, design one device for the future, it could be a dev- any kind of device. What you know, mm-hmm. imaginary or real, what would that be? I would create a device that you maybe it's like stacking a bunch of Legos in really fun ways, and then you press a button and it turns it into a physical space. So designing spaces with Legos. Ah. <laughs> That's amazing. Have you? Is this something you've thought of before? <laughs> I, I, no, I haven't. That's great. So it's like a prototyping uh, dis- tool for Very spaces. Thick, yeah, and quickly turns into an actual space. Yeah. Huh. Well, maybe, you know, hopefully someone's listening that can make that happen, actually, right? Yeah, that would be amazing. I'm not sure how physics could work with that, but yeah, that would be I amazing. love it. <laughs> I love the physicality of it, too. <laughs> yeah, right, well, thank you. you so much for being on the show today. Um, how do people find you and your work online? Um, Adi Ciano, A-R-I-C-I-A-N-O. My website is that and my Instagram is that. Fantastic. All right, well, thanks again. Um, for this is State of the Art. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening today. Uh, This is Gabe Barcia Colombo for the State of the Art podcast. Uh, State of the Art is actually created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, We have a great, fantastic producer named Vanessa Wilson. uh, And our audio specialist slash miracle waveform master is Weston Stevens. Uh, So stay tuned for next week. Uh, We're going to have another amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, but I promise it will be worth it. Bye.